We're going to be looking at Psalm 63 this morning. Psalm 63. If you don't know where Psalms are, just take your Bible, go right to the middle, and you got a really good chance. That won't work on your phone, but it'll work well with the Bible in front of you. While you're turning to Psalm 63, I'll lay some groundwork. September 7th, there was a football clash between the University of Texas and LSU, ended in a, a tremendous game, a spellbinding 45 to 37 score, but was marred by the fact that there were 12 different incidents during the game of guys having to be attended to on the field because of cramping. They had dehydrated in the 100 degree heat and a reminder of just how desperately important water is for the functioning of our bodies. We're told that a person can live Typical person can live at most four weeks without food unless they've really trained their bodies for longer than that. Um, but you can't live more than four days without water. The dehydration that comes with the lack of electrolytes limits our physical capacities, but it also, water also limits our mental capacities. I found this out firsthand with my mom. When my mom was she had had a fall, she was in the hospital, then she was temporarily in a care facility, a rehab facility, and ended up coming home, uh, thriving, doing well after that, but, um, and living for a while after being out of the physical rehab. But while she was in the physical rehab, all of a sudden one day we noticed that, that her cognitive ability was tremendously impaired. I mean, she was having delusions, she was fearful, she was agitated. And one of my daughters came uh, to visit, and, and she said, Dad, I, I think Grammy is dehydrated. And I said, you mean like water? I, I'm very scientific. You mean like <laughs> lack of water? And I said, how could that? that wouldn't, nah. Well, she was absolutely right. And they got her back on water enough. She completely uh, had her mental capacities in place. Water is essential for life. The human body is about 60% water. It needs constant replenishing. Water is essential. And extreme conditions just make your thirst even more compelling. In Psalm 63, David uses the metaphor of thirst for water to talk about a thirst that is in his own life. Here he is in the desert, and he says, yes, I'm thirsty. Yes, the extreme conditions and the heat and the, and the dryness make me, me physically thirsty. But, but I have another thirst, and it is a thirst that is the result of my, that is agitated by my personal, emotional, mental situation. That emotional, mental situation was the result of what had happened to David just prior to the events of Psalm 63. Tradition clearly identifies that this time, and you see the subscript on Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. This was during a time when a usurper had taken over, driven David out of, the, the, out of Jerusalem, actually out of what is known as the city of David, his own city had driven him out. He had gone with members of his family. He had gone with members of his inner cabinet. He had gone with many of his own soldiers. But he'd been forced to flee, and he's now out in the desert and, and, and seemingly has lost everything. And while he is there, he says, I'm thirsting. 
I'm thirsting not only physically, I'm thirsting emotionally, mentally. And we're going to look at what David says about how he resolved his thirst. But let's read it together. Psalm 63, I invite you to follow along silently as I read out loud. And if you're using the Bible in the pew, it's page 463. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful psalm. I thank you for David. I can't wait to get to heaven and meet David. And I just want to thank him for what he's meant in my own life through these years. Just this incredible picture of you that he helps us to gain. Lord, teach us about yourself this morning. Teach us what David learned. Because there's a lot of people here that are in a desert place. There's a lot of people dry and thirsty. And God, how I pray that you would make yourself known today in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you are facing external circumstances that make life more taxing. Things are hard. The heat's turned up. Life is threatening. You're struggling to find hope. Your soul is dry. David seems to be there a lot in the Psalms. As a matter of fact, 50 of the 150 Psalms are a part of what is known as the Lament Psalms. Most of them are written by David, and more than half of his Psalms are Lament Psalms. A lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow directed to God, usually resulting in a reaffirmation of trust in God. In this psalm, David talks about the thirst of his soul, a thirst that was heightened in the heat of his own personal struggles and heartaches. And there are three questions I'd like to ask of David this morning that I think are answered in this psalm. First of all, David, what were you thirsting for? Second of all, David, what did you do to quench your thirst? And third, David, how did it quench your thirst? We're going to try to look at that this morning. First of all, David, what are you thirsty for? What is David thirsting after? Now, we might expect that what David is thirsting for is relief from his suffering. He is suffering. He is in a stretched place. He's faced a lot of loss, and there are a lot of things that we would logically say in these hard times, these rejection, you know, the period of pain that he's in. Uh, he could be thirsty for vengeance. 
People have wronged him. He could be thirsty at least for vindication. He could be thirsty for his position and his reputation and his name. He could be thirsty for for his safety. But that's not what he says I'm thirsty for. He says, I'm thirsty for God. Which leads to a very natural question that we might ask of David. David, are you insane? Sincerely, have you, that's what you long for? That's what you're thirsty for? That's driving you? Do you realize what, don't you care what you've lost? Do you realize what you've lost? People loved you. They sang your praise. They sang your songs every week in the worship experience. Most of them were written by David. They sang songs about you. As a warrior, David, Saul has his thousands, but David has conquered his tens of thousands. You are the man. And here you are sitting somewhere out in the desert in disgrace. You're the individual whose kingdom was flourishing. And now you're out in the desert with a usurper sitting on your throne. In the palace you designed, in the city you built that bears your name. And you say, what I thirst for is God? Don't you care about what you've lost? I think if David were here, David would say... Yes, I care. The things I miss, things I feel the loss of greatly, but they are not the ultimate reality of my life. They are not what my hope is on. They are not what will quench the thirst of my soul. I thirst for God. And my external circumstances have simply served to heighten that thirsting. I think David would clearly acknowledge I've lost a lot. But that isn't what I long to have back. It's God that I crave, that I thirst for. Which leads to an obvious next question. David what did you do to quench your thirst? I mean, if, 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 if God is the, the one that you think will quench your thirst and satisfy your soul and, and give you hope again, which you seemingly, I mean, apparently would be lost, what uh, did you do to, how do you get quenched soul from God? And he tells us two ways very clearly. He says, well, the first thing I do is I remember. He says in three different verses in a variety of phrases. The first he says in verse 3, God, I I saw you in the sanctuary. Uh, He's bringing that to mind. But then he specifically says it this way. In verse 6, I remember you on my bed. I think of you through the watches of the night. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. God, I'm I'm just constantly rehearsing what I know and and what I've experienced. C.S. Lewis said it this way. We need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. We know a lot of truth, and even if you have just begun your Christian journey and have just begun your walk with Jesus, you've already begun to to get a a little bit of a data bank of truth. You will find as you go on in your Christian faith 
that simply having the truth does not mean it doesn't need to constantly be reaffirmed. It doesn't mean you always have to be regathering more, but it does mean that there is a need of remembering those same truths in new places, in new struggles, in new days, in new deserts. And David said, I'm, I'm just remembering those things. This is the tremendous value of journaling, to just taking time to, most of us don't have any idea what's going on inside of us. We're living too fast and hard, journaling causes us to put our thoughts in front of us. What's really driving me? What am I struggling with? What's happening? Why do I feel so upset? What am I worried about? Why am I angry? What's, what am I dealing with here? But it also enables us to reflect on God. Meditating on the Scriptures over the last many months, um, almost the last year, Marion and I have shifted our evening. We always read uh, at night together before we go to sleep. And we've started reading Scripture, not just books. We're reading Scripture each night. And usually it's just two or three verses. Sometimes it'll be a whole psalm or a whole passage. We're in Philippians now. But we use it as, as a basis of praying. And it's, it was Marion's driving desire. And I, it's been a lifeline for both of us, but basically it just, God gives us words. God gives us thoughts. God gives us things we don't know to pray about while we're lying there in bed. And, and, and it, we just, the scripture brings, uh, we'll pray about this. We'll remember this, claim this truth that, that, because I don't know about you, but the easiest time of my day for me to hear the voices, the wrong voices is at night. And it's the time, now maybe it's different for you, but, but I think for many of us in the, in, the, in the watches of the night, if you will, in, in, the, in the hours through the evening, if we, especially if we haven't fallen asleep, we're agitated of something, you hear the voices, the voices of fear, the whispers of anger, the, the, the whispers of what about, where's this going, how is this going to get resolved? And those voices can be very compelling. They can be intimidating. They can be confusing. They can be frightening. David said, I got a lot of voices right now. I got a lot of loss. I got a lot of things that aren't going how I hoped they would go. But I'm not going to listen to those voices. So what does he do? He says, I, at night, I remember I remember you on my bed. I, I reflect on you. I choose to look at different things and allow them to fill my mind. So what is he remembering? He tells us in verse 2. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Verse 6 then says, I'm remembering who you are. Now, this, this is the guts of this sermon. He is remembering God. He is remembering God's power and God's glory. He is remembering things about God that he said, show him God's greatness. Throughout the Psalms, there is a, an expression that David uses all of the time. It is the expression, fear God. He used it many times in his lament Psalms. He said, I, 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 I want to I fear God. The idea, and I said this before, is to, to be awed by God. To revere him, to just be dumbstruck with the greatness and the wonder of God. David does not use the word fear here, but he expresses the experience here. 
He says, I, 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 I just, in those night moments, I just want to be struck and awed that you're a God of power and glory again. Now, here's the question. How would that help David? How does awe help you when your soul is thirsty and when the heat's turned up and when there's danger all around? All that's true of David's circumstance. How does being awed by God help? Dacher Keltner is a professor of psychology at University of California at Berkeley. He is representing, representative of a network of scientists of, of all different disciplines who are now doing research on the subject of awe. He is not a believer, yet his perspective on awe is compelling. He has written, he's written uh, books he has done a number of TED Talks, as have his associates, and together they have researched 122 countries in the world on the subject of how do people respond and do they even have the human experience of awe. And this is what he says about awe. What is it that defines the human species as a signature strength? We don't have great physical might or not overly fast. We don't have giant canines to rip things with. The thing that is our signature strength is that we have a sense of awe. That is our ability to revere things, to treat them as sacred, to become worshipers of them. I define awe as being in the presence of something vast, beyond current understanding. Nature, music, art, temples, deities, all of the capacity to create this awe. And the subject of our awe always causes us to be struck with two realities, the vastness of that which awes us and the smallness of ourselves. Another professor from the University of Toronto, Jennifer Steller, she also in the psychology department of her college, echoes this important impact of awe. In her case, she led the international studies of 122 different cultures to see, is awe a common human experience? And so they took a series of emojis, and these emojis, they had one where they showed an emoji of happiness, and a, an emoji of anger, an emoji of worry, and an emoji of awe, be astonished by something uh, awesome. And they found that of all the emojis, the one that everybody identified was the emoji of awe. This idea that your eyebrows go up, your you just, oh my goodness. They said, you couldn't, and people didn't all have a word or a, a, a concept, a term for, for uh, anger in the same way. They didn't identify, but that look, the look of, oh my goodness, everybody had it. And she, so they evaluated when you have that experience, and for them it would be various things, many of them in nature, many of them uh, deity related, but they said, what, what happens? And they said, and she said, the overwhelming consistent reality in all of those 122 countries, all different cultures, was that when people were in the presence of something big, they felt smaller. One other quick example, because I have to bring in one of the most important theologians of all time, Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Dr. Seuss, in one of my two favorite Dr. Seuss books, I'll talk to you later about the other one, Dr. Seuss in Bartholomew Cubbins and the 500 Hats, here is what he said. The kingdom of Did was ruled by King Derwin. His palace stood on the high, on the, high on the top of the mountain. From his balcony, he looked down over the houses of all his subjects. 
First over the spires of the noblemen's castles, across the broad roofs of the rich men's mansions, then over the little houses of the townsfolk, to the huts of the farmers far off in the fields. It was a mighty view, and it made King Derwin feel mighty important. Far off in the fields, on the edge of a cranberry bog, stood the hut of the Cubbins family. From the small door, Bartholomew looked across the huts of the farmers, to the huts of the town folks, then to the rich men's mansions and the noblemen's castles, up to the great towering palace of the king. It was exactly the same view that King Derwin saw from his balcony, but Bartholomew saw it backward. It was a mighty view. But it made Bartholomew Cubbins feel mighty small. It is not only you that feels small in such a moment when you are struck with the awesome bigness of God. It is your circumstances feel smaller. Everything about you And your life feels smaller. The researchers that I referred to earlier, this awe network, one of the things they did was they took a a, a large group of people and they had them take paper and pen. Uh, uh, They had art professors actually oversaw this thing down to the Fisherman's Wharf in in, uh, San Francisco. And while they were there, they said, look, we want you to just watch. And it's teeming with people from all over the cultures, all over the world. And it's just massive humanity, apparently. And they said... All right, now take yourself back and just draw a simple drawing of yourself in the fisherman's wharf. And they said in the overwhelming majority of cases, almost everybody drew themselves as the biggest person. You know, sort of they were in the front of the picture and they were in the mass of people. They felt pretty big in the midst of humanity. They took that same group of people and they put them at the edge of the Grand Canyon. And they said, all right, take this scenario. Now, draw yourself in this scene. Now, what they could easily have done is here they are at the edge of the Grand Canyon. You know, they just draw. There they are at the front of the picture, and their big picture of them, small picture of Grand Canyon. Nobody did that. Everybody drew this giant picture of this cavernous cut in the earth and a little them. And they said, this is what awe does. It makes our lives smaller and the awesome thing bigger. This is what David is saying. I got problems. I'm in a tough spot. I need a big God. I need a God that awes me. I need a God that stuns me. And he says, when I think about that God in the middle of the night, when I'm just all of a sudden hearing all the voices and all of a sudden I remember... This God, as Isaiah said, this God is our God forever. This God is our God, and he will be our guide forever and ever. He says, this God is my God, and he will see me through. I don't know where this is going. And David says, I I thirst for this God. Here's what happens when we're awed by that kind of a God. We're told in Exodus 15 that when the Israelites... God had taken them through the Red Sea, you know, three million strong. He, he opens the sea up and three million people straggle through. They get to the other side and then they, 
the, the 600 Sherman tanks of Egypt in the form of Pharaoh's chariots come zooming through, and then they get in the middle. God drops the envelope back on them, and the waters destroy the chariots of, of Pharaoh. Here's what it says happened to the people of Israel. Exodus 15, you can look it up. It says this phrase, and the people, when, he, when they saw what God had done, it says, the people feared God. They were awed by God. It says, the people feared God and put their trust in him. That's what awe does. It says, oh my goodness, this isn't about me. This isn't about trusting me. David says, this isn't about me figuring out my situation. I don't know if I'll ever be back in Jerusalem. I don't know if I'll ever uh, have the song sung about me again. I don't know if I'll ever be a part of the worship. I don't know where this is going. But I don't have to because I'm not in charge. I'm not the one superintending my life. There is an awe-inspiring, stunning God whose voice and whose reality is louder to me than any other voices. And it compels me to put my trust in him. And David says, that's why I thirst for him. It isn't, I just need a good buddy to come along and sort of, you know, say, boy, this is tough, man. Let's do life together. He says, I don't need that kind of God right now. I need a big God. I need a God that's, 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 Grand Canyon, stunning. But he not only says when he remembers that he remembers the greatness of God. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. In the Old Testament, and particularly the book of Psalms, this word that is, that is actually the Hebrew word chesed, uh, K-H-E-S-E-D would be the transliteration of it, is one of the most important Old Testament concepts. It's all different ways. People translate it covenant love. Uh, uh, the NIV regularly translates it unfailing love, or in some cases just love like they do here. The ESV regularly translates steadfast love. I, I don't think that's strong enough. It, it, it's the sense of an active, pursuing, uh, aggressive love. A, a, the love of longing is involved in this. In David's Psalms, if, if you ever spend a couple of weeks reading through the entire Psalms, I guarantee you will come away with an awareness. You know what? David was just preoccupied with God's love. Sometimes we talk about the Old Testament, and here's the view of God that, that he's holy, and he's, he's just, and, and, he, and he's, he's, he's majestic and, and wrathful, whatever word you want to use it. But we say it's really when you come to the New Testament, you find the love of God. Nobody gave that memo to David. David was stunned with how crazy God was about him. He just says, it's your love. It's your love that's my life. It, it's the fact that, that you have this, this, this raging, in, in the best sense of that, this, this longing towards me, this, this craving for me as your child, as your son. In Psalm 138, verse 8, he says it this way. 
the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your unfailing love, O Lord, endures forever. Don't forsake the work of your hands. The work of his hands he's talking about here was himself. Lord, I know you won't forsake me. I know you're going to fulfill your purpose for me. Why? Because your love doesn't fail. He says it this way when he was really struggling in Psalm 13. How long, Lord? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day and night or day after day and have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? But I've trusted in your unfailing love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation or literally deliverance. I'm counting on it. It's, it's what I'm leaning into. I'm leaning into it again. Yeah, it's long, he says. It's hard. But I'm leaning into the fact that you have a love that does not fail. It is the assurance that God is not only big. It's cool that God is awesome, right? I mean, it's, it's fabulous to, to hear of God's universe and the, and, and the expanse of what he's created and, and the billions and billions of stars and, and that he says he's created them and, and he calls them each by name. Wow, what a God. But quite frankly, who cares if he's not good? Who cares if he's not your God? If you're not his daughter, if you're not his son? Otherwise, it's scary that he's that big. But if you're his boy or you're his girl, if you're the one that he has made a part of his own eternal family, And it's no wonder somebody like David says, I thirst for him more than anything else. David was convinced that God was crazy about him. And he says, I, I remember this, and I need to constantly remember it. And he says, being in, in, a, in a season in my life where it's stretching, I find that that's the reality that I most thirst for. It's just knowing God. It's seeing God. It's doing life with God. It's experiencing God. A God that's great and a God that is good. But he says, not only do that, do I remember, I praise. He says this in verse 4, 5, 7, and 9. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. He says, I praise you, I glorify you, I make melody. All these things are phrases here. David says, I quench my thirst in God by remembering his power, his unfailing love, and then I praise him. He said, this enables me to have my soul satisfied, to have hope even in a place that seems hopeless. Philippians 4, Paul said it in New Testament, a version of this, hundreds of years later, where he said, don't be anxious about anything. Don't sweat anything. Why? He says, but how do I do that? He says, well, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here's what will happen, he says. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind. He says, praise. Yeah, bring your concerns to God, but do it with praise for who he is and what he's going to do. David said, this is what I'm doing. This is what I, when I thirst for God, what I'm doing is remembering him rehearsing who he is. When I'm thirsting for God and I want to drink from the well, the spigot of the water of, of him in my life, I remember and I praise. I remember he's big. I'm awed by it. I remember he's, he's lovely and he's good and he's gracious and I'm awed by it. 
So we come to our last question. Why did it quench his thirst? And I think verse 3 gives us our answer. He says this, because your love is better than life. The term love here is one that many authors have tried to express with the intensity that I think it deserves. Because the word love for us means a thousand things, and and when you have multiple definitions of something, it all just sort of blends together with a, a blah in the middle. The love that is involved here is a intense, pursuing, longing love. Brennan Manning has written a book called The Furious Longing of God. And he, it's about God's longing for his children. It, the word fury, he, he explains, is like the fury of a gathering storm, the meaning morphing into intense energy. He quotes G.K. Chesterton, one of the greatest writers of the English language, a wonderful Christian of days gone by. Chesterton spoke of the furious love of God. He was referencing the enormous vitality and strength of the God of Jesus Christ seeking union with us. Rich Mullins, musician and songwriter now in heaven, sought to describe the same longing of God in one of his songs when he said, in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God. I don't know what your experience is with Brennan Manning. Um, I don't agree with all of his theology. I don't care, frankly. I love his God. I love his God that is a pursuing, loving God. A God that longs after his children. This is what David could say. This love, this desire for me, this longing for me is what makes me thirst for him and long for him. It is what gives hope to his children. Psalm 147, verse 11, says this, which actually is probably the verse that God has most used in my life in the last couple of years. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. He says, The Lord finds pleasure. He delights in those who hope, who place their hope in the fact that God's love will not fail them. That's what David's saying. I don't know what's going in the future. I don't know if I'll ever see my city again, my throne again, my position again, uh, if my legacy will ever, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, that's not what is driving my life. It is not the ultimate compare of me, care of my life. The care of my life, I thirst for God. I thirst to know God. I thirst to rest in God, and I hope in his unfailing love. Now, if you look at that, this is a remarkable statement. It says, his pleasure is not in the strength of the horse. Well, the strength of the horse, the horse was the strength of an army. In those days, that's what propelled the the tanks, the chariots. If you had an army of horses, 
you had an incredible advantage, even though an army far was superior in terms of numerical force. If they were all infantry, you, you had far superiority just by the horse. The horse is the most powerful weapon. He says his strength, his pleasure is not in, in the strength of the horse, nor is his delight in the legs of the warrior. What does that mean? Well, the strongest muscles in your body are your quads. They're, they're the, the, the muscles that, that can lift the most weight, that can do, they're your power. But he says, God's not looking for powerful people. His delight is not in people that say, oh, I've done all this for God, and I'm living for God, and, and I'm making a difference for God, and, and, I, and I, I'm giving all my resources to God, and I'm giving all my opportunities to God, and I'm giving all my time to God, and all my gifts, it's all at his disposal. That's all cool and great. But that's not what delights God. What ultimately delights God, he says is this, those who put their hope that his love doesn't fail, that they may not be strong, they may not be significant, they may not be powerful, they may be totally insignificant in the eyes of the world, but he says, where my eye goes is to that man, that woman that says, I want God above everything else. Yes, all I have, all I own, everything is his but even when things are taken, even when I feel destitute, I hope in him that his love will not fail. He completes this psalm in verse 11 with this statement. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him. He has a settled determination to glorify God for his power, for his love, for his greatness, for his goodness. And he is identifying with all of created, all of creation, that God is calling forth praise to his glory. God's glory is revealed in the heavens. It's revealed in creation. He says that throughout the Psalms. And David is saying, I'm aligning myself with him in that endeavor. I want my life I want my responses. I want him to be the living center. I want him to be my life. I want to glorify him, even here in the desert. There's a song that has become um, a favorite to both Marin and I over the last year. And it is a song that expresses those very, that very sentiment. The sentiment I think he's ending his psalm with. It's called, uh, So Will I. I'm going to, I have a video. I'm going to close our service with this. And I'm just going to say this disclaimer. I know there's a couple of people that, that, that struggle with, uh, there's a phrase in there that seems to imply he, the author might be leaning to theistic evolution. Uh, I'm not even sure that's what he's saying. But even if it is, um, there is so much beauty in this song that I hope we can, we can just hear what he's saying. It is a compelling voice to us to unite our hearts with all of creation. That wherever we are, whatever we're facing, whatever's going on in the desert of your life right now, you say, I'm going to join with all the rest of God's creation and I am going to say, as they praise him, so will I. We can go ahead and play that, please.
salvation to chase down my heart through all of my failure and pride on a hill you created the light of the world abandoned in darkness to die And as you speak, a hundred billion things disappear. Well, you lost your life so I can find it here. And if you left the grave behind you so alive, I can see your heart. missed.